Welcome to the Toka Backstage Podcast. Join Toka's Executive Director, Chris Wolf, in conversations with the artists and people behind the scenes of the Torrance Cultural Arts Foundation's performances and events. Welcome to another edition of uh, Toka Backstage. This is Chris Wolf, the Executive Director of the Torrance Cultural Arts Foundation, and it is my extreme honor to have with me today Maria Moldar, who will be performing in the Studio Cabaret February 15th and 16th at 7.30 in the Nakano Theater. Uh, Ms. Moldar, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Well, thank you for having me. We're looking forward to our performance there in Torrance. So I have to know, your newest album, which, by the way, has been uh, nominated for a 2019 Grammy. Yay! Um, <laughs> don't You Feel My Leg, The Naughty Body Blues of Blue Lou Bake Barker. How, yeah. well, where where did that come from? Well, if you go back to my first album, the one that had that goofy little song about the camel on it that was such a huge hit worldwide, that would be Midnight at the Oasis for those of your audience that aren't old enough to remember that. So that was in 1973. I was doing my first solo album, and it was a very eclectic album. It had all sorts of different songs on it, Um, because I've always been a, even though I've had a couple of big pop hits, uh, I have always described my career as a long and rambling odyssey through various forms of American roots music. So on that first album, there was a country song by Dolly Parton, and there was, uh, you know, Midnight at the Oasis and some songs written by contemporary writers and uh, and an old Jimmy Rogers song and a song called Don't You Feel My Leg, which was brought to me by Dr. John, who I was lucky enough to be working in the studio with at the time. That 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 first album had all the most amazing musicians on it, and it was a big thrill for me to find myself in the studio with such amazing uh, musicians. But anyway, one day he walks in and uh, says, um, I think I got a great song for your album. You know, he has a thick New Orleans accent. And he pulled out a little cassette and played me this wonderful blues called uh, by a New Orleans by a New Orleans blues singer named Blue Lou Barker, and it was called Don't You Feel My Leg. And we thought it was cute, and uh, they, she originally had recorded it in the early 40s, and we put it on the album. And, of course, as everyone knows, Midnight at the Oasis just climbed to the top of the charts and stayed there for months and months and was nominated for a Grammy and, and so forth and so on. And but DJs started reporting back to us that Don't You Feel My Leg was actually getting even more requests on their shows. And uh, they even considered putting it out as a second single after Midnight had been on the charts for months. But then they thought about it. And to show you how different times were then than now, they decided that maybe if they put that out, it might pigeonhole me as a sort of a red-hot mama or just a sex symbol. And and since I wanted to be known as a serious artist, they decided not to. All I can say is, my, how times have changed. (laughs) When you think of how much the, you know, artists and and record companies use sex to sell everything. But anyway, so from that day to this, I've included it in my shows, and it's always, you know, it's the most requested song I get when I do my live performances. And a couple of years ago, I was asked to do a uh, 
tribute concert to Blue Lou Barker, who was a much-beloved artist in New Orleans. She, she passed away now. And uh, so in preparation for that concert, I started looking up more of her material. And to my delight, I discovered that she and her husband, Danny Barker, had written and recorded dozens of songs equally naughty and bawdy and funny and clever as Don't You Feel My Leg. It was just it was just a treasure trove of great fun material. So I put together a fabulous A A list of great New Orleans players. We did the show and people just rushed up to the C D table afterwards and said, Where can we get the which which of these CDs has the has that these songs on it and and that moment, a light bulb went off over my head, and I and I realized that we should try to share this material with the rest of the world. And so I put together the same great musicians and had the great opportunity to record it this summer down in New Orleans. And um, then we toured behind it in the fall, and everybody, the audiences wherever we went, just loved the new material. And it's been a lot of fun. And, and imagine my thrill when. I got nominated for a Grammy, so I'm I'm just thrilled about the way this has all come about. And I'm also very gratified to think that this wonderful music that was recorded so long ago is still relevant today, and people are still enjoying it today, and I'm really enjoying sharing it with people. That's wonderful. It, so it, it's, it's interesting to, I mean, having not grown up, but when I was, I, I I mean, I'm not much older, younger than you, but I remember Midnight at the Oasis being sort of the big hit, and then there wasn't a lot coming, being heard from you on the radio stations I listened to as, as a youngster. Mm -hmm. So do you find that it was, but you had said that they were trying to pigeonhole, they, they were afraid that Don't You Feel My Leg May Pigeonhole You. Do you think that Midnight at the Oasis kind of pigeonholed you as a pop star, pop artist, instead of uh, no, Americana? Because, no, because... Interesting that you use that word Americana because I will share with you that about a dozen years ago I was doing an interview like this and the interviewer, he said, you, you single-handedly invented the genre called Americana uh, uh, about several decades before anyone actually gave it a name. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, look at the songs that are on your first album, a, a bluegrass-style Dolly Parton song, a blues by a New Orleans blues woman, uh, you know, stuff by Kate McGarrigle, all this different stuff. But it, to me, it's all it's either good music or it isn't. And so I never paid that much attention. I did have a couple more minor hits, but nothing could beat the, the magnitude of, of Midnight at the Oasis because it was, I found out later, not just a big hit all over the U.S., but all over the world, just not even based on the other 40 albums I've done since then because this Blue Lou Barker tribute, Don't You Feel My Leg, is my 41st album that I've done in the 45 years since Midnight at the Oasis. But just based on that alone, to give you an example, about five years ago, I was I was asked to, I was invited to headline a blues and jazz festival in Borneo. Now, <laughs> Borneo, you can't get any further away from the United States as to go to Borneo. I, I think it took three long plane rides to get there. But that's the amazing thing about how far and wide that, that particular hit 
uh, traveled and, and, and the staying power it has to this day. So after my first solo album, I was, no one could have been more surprised than me at the amazing pop success it had. Uh, but I just continued my exploration of various forms of American roots music. On my second solo album, which is called Waitress in a Donut Shop, I had a, a hit with a song. I did a Lieber and Stoller song called I'm a Woman. But it only reached up to about number 12 on the charts. It, it you know, it wasn't a big gangbuster hit like Midnight. But also I started doing some big band material. I love to revisit great music from the past and I got to work with people like Benny Carter and an all-star big band and and got to work with Doc Watson who had been a one of my main influences and so on and so forth it's continued through all the 40 albums I've done blues albums I've done gospel albums I've done some award-winning award-winning kids albums as long as it's good as it's good and it moves me that's what I'm interested in doing. I never once thought again about having another hit. That wasn't my goal, and that's not my goal today. It's just to keep presenting good quality music to people. Well, and that's uh, and, and bravo to you for that, because too often nowadays you find artists who that's sort of their. It's funny. I had a conversation with a with a young artist, and they were saying, "I said, so what is your ultimate goal?" thinking, well, it's, you know, to write music that moves people. And they said, oh, we want to win a Grammy. I'm like, well, that's, <laughs> that's not a goal. But that's icing on the cake. If you, just, <laughs> if you do something that's that worthy of it, that's just icing on the cake. Yeah, well, but looking at the list of albums that you put out, I mean, truly it spans every genre of music. Not hip-hop or rap, but almost everything else. I mean, you even have an album with the uh, songs from Shirley Shirley Temple. Yeah, that was one of the kids' projects I really enjoyed doing. There was a wonderful label called Music for Little People. Sadly, it doesn't exist anymore. I would have to say, Christian, that most of the record labels that I've recorded for in the last 45 years don't exist anymore. But I'm still here, you see what I mean? But anyway, I had already done a couple for them. And my goal in doing, when they first approached me, it wasn't like I was sitting around my house going, gee, I wish I could make a kid's album. So the idea, you know, kind of took me off guard. But then I thought about it and I thought, well, you know, kids deserve to have have just as excellent music as grown-ups do. And a lot of kids' music is kind of, uh, unfortunately, it's done by artists that maybe never would have a serious chance as, as an artist for adults, you know what I mean? Right. And they write very simplistic little songs like, you know, brush your teeth or they'll all fall out, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. So I decided that if I was going to do kids' albums, I would do quality songs, and I reached back thought about all the wonderful songs I heard when I was a little girl growing up that my aunts would play or that I would hear on the radio. Back in a kinder, gentler era when songs were more innocent and could be, you know, just as much for kids as for adults, like Would You Like to Swing on a Star or Jeepers, Peepers, Where'd You Get Those Peepers? You know, these were songs that were on the hit parade in the 40s and 50s and 
even some in the 30s. And I assembled a killer band of fabulous jazz music, all the best jazz musicians in the in the Bay Area. And we did, uh, first I did uh, On the Sunny Side, then the follow-up to that was Swinging in the Rain. And all the music was very swingy and jazzy with great guitar solos and clarinet solos and so forth. And then the, the company asked me to make the music of uh, do one on the music of Shirley Temple, and at first I thought, uh, wh- why she already <laughs> did it so perfectly? And then I realized that those things had been recorded as part of soundtracks in the 30s, and you know, way way back. So the sound quality was very thin, kind of yeah. thin and scratchy. You know, it sounded like a soundtrack from an old old movie. So I realized that for today's contemporary young ears, that they'd want to hear it in the kind of more full fidelity and sound quality that they were used to hearing. So I very painstakingly recreated the wonderful arrangements and so forth and uh, did some of her most iconic tunes. And it was just a delightful experience. And I have to say, it gave me such respect for Shirley Temple because, you know, she sang those things before she was five years old and there's not a flat or sharp note in any of her singing. (laughs) She was just amazing. I was struggling to keep up with her even though I was in my 40s when I was making those albums. But anyway, that's one you're mentioning that that was a, a delight to make. And, you know, it's interesting. Different projects take me in different different areas that I haven't explored before. And I always come out learning something and, you know, gaining a new love and respect for whatever the style I've been working in is. Do you find that you have a favorite style or a style that you prefer to to sing over another? Well, I would have to say I always love gospel music, but I love jazz. I'm thinking is, well, we go by Maria Muldar and the Red Hot Bluesiana Band. And Bluesiana is a word that I made up years ago to describe the kind of New Orleans-flavored blues, R&B, and swamp funk that we like to play. And a lot of my stuff definitely has that flavor in it. So that's sort of where I've settled for my everyday musical excursions. And I went out on the road with that band this fall to introduce and share with our audience the fun material on the new album. And people just loved it. But I want to let you and your listeners know that we always do certain songs that are beloved by our audience, no matter how many new projects we have or albums or whatever we have going on there are certain songs in fact the guys call them the big three that we always do as well as some other favorites but without fail we do midnight at the oasis it ain't to me it's the motion for my second album and don't you feel my leg those are the most requested and then we sprinkle in a few other old favorites that people love like brickyard blues and just we we mix it up there's so much material to choose sure everyone gets happy when they hear their old favorites and and uh and introduce them to a lot of new stuff that that's our favorites now when when people leave a maria Muldar concert what what do you hope that they walk away with joy joy yes in fact 
in fact, you know, these are pretty hard and heavy times in a lot of ways. I we, we don't need to go into that because it's all around us all the time on the news every night and so forth. And I think people need to be uplifted. In fact, I've always thought that, getting back to those young people who thought their big goal was to have a Grammy. My big goal is to uplift lift people's hearts, minds, and spirits with music. To me, that's what music is for. It's not about fame, fortune, money, awards, none of that. And um, I'll tell you, you know, I mean, we, I always have a good band with me, and I, I'm in good voice, and so we almost always give a great performance. And we always get, you know, people coming up after the show going, oh, I loved it, I loved your voice, I loved your guitar player, I loved the show. But this time in the last year or so, People come up to the CD table afterwards and they don't just thank me and give me some kind of compliment. They're more likely to grab me by the arm and look me in the eye and go, thank you. We really needed this. And I realize how important it is to keep live music alive and well. And that's why I just love the fact that there are more and more little performing arts centers like like yours where people can it's not just about hearing the music it's about coming out in community together live and experiencing the music together as part of whatever local community you're in and that definitely raise, elevates the whole experience that's why i always ask that there nope that everybody put their cell phones away turn them off and do not photograph or video or record the show in any way because it takes away from the experience of everybody actually being there in the present moment. And for what? Then they look at they what if they they try to capture a moment that they're no longer in because they're busy filming it. And then what do they get out of it? They get to see see it reduced to a you know four-inch little screen with crappy sound. And, you know, meanwhile, they've missed the whole experience of being in the room with their friends and neighbors and enjoying live music that was brought to them by great musicians who traveled miles and miles, sometimes hundreds of miles, like we will be doing when we play there, to come and bring the music live. So I'm very, I feel very strongly about that. We, we People were it's not the same as downloading it on Spotify or, or you know, listening to it on your on your cell phone. It's kind of a joke after years of re- recording. And I, by the way, I've I've produced almost all the records I've done in the last twenty years. I've produced myself, and in that time, I've garnered four Grammy nominations just since about nineteen. I'm sorry, about just since about two thousand two. And if people knew the painstaking agony that producers and musicians go through recording, you know, creating, recording, and mixing an album to try to make it sound the most beautiful it can sound. And why are we doing this for people to listen on their crappy little cell phone speakers? I just think it's it's a, a crazy world out there. I mean, so... I feel like if people come out to hear this live, they'll get an experience. They'll remember always. And um, 
And well, so that, that's my philosophy on the matter. <laughs> I'm I'm really tempted to take that little bit you said about recording on the screens and and playing it before every show that we do because Please, I, cannot, <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people you stand in the back of the house you know just I, I stand back there just making sure everyone's having a good time and I can't tell you how many you know phones I see recording it's like you're what you basically paid to come see a live performance so you could watch it on a TV screen. That doesn't make sense. On a tiny, tiny TV <laughs> screen. And by the way, I do ask that the, whoever's announcing or introducing me ask that they everybody put it away. And if I see it out, I can see everything that's going on. I'll stop the show. I, and I well, have a very nice way of doing it. I say, oh, perhaps you didn't hear the announcer, you know. And I just, and then usually when I ask the person to please put their phone away, the, the, then everyone else cheers, you know, because I well, think people I, I have, sick of it. <laughs> I have the honor of introducing you, so I will make sure that everybody puts away their cell phones. Oh, goody. <laughs> you know, I always tell them, look, if you feel like you just, have to take a picture of this old broad. You can come up to the CD table later, but it's, it's very distracting. How would they like it if I came to their office and started taking pictures of them? I love it. I love it. One other thing that that the foundation does that is kind of different than most uh, arts organizations is we try to foster uh, young performers. We give them opportunities to perform in, in professional right. situations, and we we try and mentor them as best we can. Do right. you have any words of wisdom to young aspiring singers, musicians, artists? Yes, I think I do after all these years. I would say, just like I said to those Grammy-hungry kids you spoke to, being a musician is is a hard life. Maybe the people you see on TV that you they may have, sold millions of albums, but you should never get into music because you think it's going to make you rich. You need to get into music if it really moves you and if you feel that you can do it with authenticity and put a lot of your, a lot of heart and soul into it because the purpose of music, music is a healing art just as much as being a doctor or a nurse is. Music is here for us, is a gift that we have that a blessing that we can share that moves people like a million words all by themselves can't do. Songs can break down walls. Songs can make people feel united. Songs can relieve sorrow. Music relieves sorrow and heartbreak and, and just brings joy to people. And that should be your motive. And it uh, doesn't mean you even have to make a living at it. In former times, before there were, you know, recordings and, and certain people got to be big, huge, mega stars, every little community had people that were more or less musically talented, and those would be the people that would, you know, learn an instrument and play at weddings and, and you know, square dances and funerals and, and so forth and just community celebrations. And then on Monday morning, they'd go back to plowing the fields or selling groceries or whatever they did. And nobody thought of them as big, huge stars, but they were contributing something to the community at large. And that should be motivation for playing music, to bring joy and enjoyment to people in this 
often cool world. I, I that was that was very very well put, and I I I will share those words of wisdom as as often as I can because I I agree. It's sad when you see people who who see a successful artist or sports figure or whatever and say, well, that's what I want to do because I want to make that kind of money. It's like if you don't have the passion for it and if it's not something that you're passionate about, don't do it. I agree, and I also will stick my neck out and say something else. You know, there's a lot of people are moved to write songs. You know, I mean, people who are genuinely wanting to express themselves through song, and that's always a good thing. That's never a bad thing. But the kind of music that endures, and this is what I love about the blues, is music, and that is universal. It's not getting up on a stool with a nylon string guitar or whatever kind of guitar and just singing songs to the audience about your own inner pain and your feelings, <laughs> you know. Like, I, that is, that's why the shrinks are paid to $200 an hour and more these days. It's to listen to that. You know, the, the, it, it, I call it Dear Diary music. You know, it needs to, music to move people shouldn't just be about your own pain. It should be, and I love the way the blues works. And it's like a, almost a mystical equation that happens in the blues is where the person in the song expresses the pain or the problem or the hurt or the situation. But yet somehow by the end, there's a resolution. There's a, like the promise of transcending whatever the problem might be, you know, like the, yeah. the, a classic old blues song says, uh, it says, uh, trouble in mind, I'm blue, but I won't be blue always because the sun's going to shine in my back door someday. You know, it's like it just doesn't wallow in the pain. <laughs> and, um, you know, write those songs down, but think twice before you want to inflict them on a poor unsuspecting <laughs> group of people who came out to the coffee house to, you know, to hopefully have an enjoyable evening. (laughs) Great words of wisdom, and I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but I urge people to come to see your amazing performance on February 15th and 16th at the Nakano Theater as part of our cabaret series. Thank you so much, Maria, for taking the time to chat. I really do appreciate it, and we really look forward to seeing you uh, next month. We're looking forward to it also.